Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Alicia Seiger. Alicia Seiger is the Managing Director of the Stanford University's Sustainable Finance Initiative at Precourt Institute of Energy, uh, located in the Stanford Dewar School of Sustainability. Uh, Alicia Seiger is a board member of Ceres and Prime Coalition. She's also a sustainability advisory council member at Pacific Gas and Electric Company. She previously served as the co-chair of the state of California climate-related risk disclosure advisory group and also as a member of the New York State Decarbonization Advisory Panel. Alicia Saiga has a dual bachelor's degree in environmental policy and cultural anthropology from Duke University and an MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, so welcome, uh, Alicia. How's it going in California? Well, thank you, Jonas. It's a nice welcome. Really delighted to be here. And it is a beautiful day here in California. Awesome. So I was doing a lot of research about you uh, before this interview, and I found that say, your educational background to be quite interesting. Uh, you did a bachelor's uh, combining two subjects that are not very common, let's say, uh, in the climate tech space or climate finance space at Duke University, and then you went and did an MBA. So could you tell us more about your educational background and how it may have given you an advantage, let's say, throughout the clean tech era and later on in your career? Sure. So I did a program at Duke called Program 2, where you could design your own curriculum. So sort of the entrepreneur in me emerging as a freshman, sophomore in college and looking at the menu of majors and not finding me uh, reflected. And so I, I basically combined the environmental science and policy major with cultural anthropology and a study abroad in Australia. And really what I was getting at was this question of the relationship between humans and natural systems. And it really evolved from sort of humans and the environment to business and the environment to now capital markets and climate. So that was the journey, um, the learning journey I went on. But this, now that you're seeing a proliferation of sustainability schools and sustainability majors, I mean, it was really that, um, but it didn't exist when I was in college. Um, so I made it up. And can you tell us a bit about your experience? I know you uh, worked briefly during the dot-com bubble and then you went to business school. Yeah. So, I mean, really amazing experience to be able to design my own major at Duke. Um, I was able to write my senior thesis on intellectual property rights as a means to preserve cultural and biological diversity for indigenous communities. Fascinating and really critical work to this day. But guess what? When you graduate from college and with that as your senior thesis, there's not a lot of places to go work that directly applies it, at least that I felt like was going to give me the kind of experience and opportunities that I was really seeking with that sort of entrepreneurial spirit and, and looking for a meritocracy and rapidly growing enterprise. And so this was in the mid 90s. I came back to the Bay Area where I'm from, the beginning of the dot-com boom. This was long before money was you know, growing on trees. And when the internet was still very new, I joined, I was the ninth employee at Flycast, which was a web advertising network, one of the first to play in that space. This was in a time where people had no idea what a banner ad was, let alone why you would want it. That was great from um, the perspective of scratching my entrepreneurial itches and building a new venture in an emerging sector of the economy. I worked with great people. It was super interesting. I had incredible opportunities. I was able to really grow and develop my professional skills. 
But at the end of the day, keeping the internet free was not my mission in life. I really felt I was drifting off course from what I really wanted to do in the world. And so I looked at MBA programs as a way to um, develop a toolkit, a network, some time to recharge and rethink and rechart a, a course back into this intersection of entrepreneurship and at this point, business and the environment. Um, and so I had seen an article around the time I was applying to school, um, a global chocolate shortage because of unsustainable harvesting practices. And as a passionate consumer of chocolate, that was <laughs> very upsetting to me um, and took a, took a leap and wrote my admissions essay on that to respond to the question of what matters most to you and why. Um, hoping that chocolate might also be a passion of some folks in admissions offices and got luck. And to this day, you know, I've had a conversation with the then head of the admission. You know, I'm one of the few people who's really doing what I said I was going to do in that admissions essay. But it really was, I saw it as a great opportunity to do those things and then set a new course afterward. And it really, it did. And I, I felt the GSB was the best place to do. One thing that's very interesting about your GSB experience is that you also took on board some academic activities like writing business school case studies. And I was impressed that you wrote about like 22 business school case studies, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and it ranges everything from search funds to Netflix and arena football league. And <laughs> yeah. so I'd be very curious, how did your MBA experience go about? But then after you finished your MBA, you joined Terrapass as the first employee. So you moved from chocolate to carbon offsets. How how was that transition? <laughs> Fun fact, we actually did an offset for a chocolate bar, which was kind of a peak career moment. So little uh, clarification, the 22 case studies I wrote were as a key writer for the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies after I graduated. So while I was there, I was you know, trying to intersect my passions. I was the co-president of the Environmental Management Club with the other member of the Environmental Management Club. <laughs> it wasn't a particularly popular time for, for sort of a certain climate, you know, were not words that went together, clean tech either. So this was really early days. And you know, this was still like the body shop and so sort of environmentally friendly products kind of things was as close to intersecting business and the environment as the conversation was getting. And that was in part then why I stayed to write case studies, because as I looked out on the landscape, all my friends, classmates were going off back into these dot-com companies doing web advertising again. And I was just not interested in that. I mean, I would have made a lot of money had I done that, but that wasn't my purpose. <laughs> um, and so I thought about actually med tech and biotech as a way to sort of have that business and, and impact intersection, but it wasn't in my DNA. I didn't fit in those groups. And so I then saw this opportunity to write case study. It's an experiential MBA I and mean, one of the greatest um, experiences you can have at a business school in the sense that I got to work with the most wonderful mentor um, who teach entrepreneurship at the GSB, um, got to work with the incredible management team and investors to understand their journeys and learn from them and write. And actually, I enjoy writing. And you know, among MBAs, I'm a writer. <laughs> among writers, I'm an MBA. But it was fun to flex that muscle a little bit too. I learned a lot. And then um, still actually coming out of the case writing experience, I took one more detour, went back and joined the management team that I had been with at Flycast at a company called wine.com, um, which was fun, um, but it's still not the opportunity I was looking for. And then I saw this job description, um, thanks to a friend I have coffee with, who's still a colleague in this space, for Terrapass, which at the time it was a class project at Wharton and the founder had moved out to California to be with his girlfriend who, funny enough, had, was a childhood friend of mine. I was 
uh, her understudy in Alice in Wonderland. She was the Dormouse and I was the Three of Clubs. So we went way back and I had a good cover letter to write to pitch my candidacy for this first employee one. And the rest is history, as they say. Uh, what's interesting, when I was looking through all the case studies, I found that there was a case study about you published in 2009. Uh, so <laughs> could you tell us about your uh, experience at TerraPass? and also particularly that case study in mind. Yeah, I mean, that was funny. Again, you, you did your homework so well, you unearthed things from my past I had forgotten. Yeah, so Terrapod was a wonderful experience. First time I felt in the flow of entrepreneurship and business and the environment, market-based to climate. And we were on a roll, riding the wave of an increasing awareness of individuals' impact on climate a new mechanism to purchase offsets as a way to restore the balance um, of your climate impact. Uh, this was around the Inconvenient Truth time, Al Gore winning an Oscar. Then <laughs> a couple things happened. I mean, the Al Gore winning an Oscar kind of politicized carbon offsets in ways that were challenging. There was macroeconomic disruptions that sort of uh, limited uh, discretionary spending. Um, but probably the greatest challenge in the subject of that case uh, was a really harsh critique of one of our projects in a Business Week article. And it was, I will never forget that moment when the story came out and, and that feeling of just deep pain and despair that here was the, you know, it's hard when you're building an early stage venture, it, it is who you are. It's not even just a child, it is you. Um, and so I was out as the VP of business development of selling this opportunity and really pitching this to not only, I wasn't as focused on the direct to consumer channels, I was building partnerships with businesses, as I said, the, the chocolate company, but also with Sam's Club and Enterprise Rental Car and Expedia. And, and here was this just biting attack on what we were doing. And, and that story of carbon markets being to Catholic church indulgences has been around, and we see it today too. And we can talk more, you know, how I've evolved in my thinking about carbon markets. But but the subject of that case was a crisis management, uh, reputation saving, and learning uh, through that experience to pivot into a new phase of even greater um, quality and rigor to our offset project. So I don't need to get into the details. I would still defend what we did. <laughs> the, but but it doesn't matter. I mean, that's sort of the point. Like when you're in an industry um, or selling product or, that are under a microscope, you can't control the narrative, um, especially as a small startup. And so that was a real learning experience. And I will say just as a former case writer, this sort of the, one aspires to then show up one day as the protagonist in the cape. And we got to do that, which was fun. It was still a, a harsh chapter to be digging back into and recalling, but, but it was fun to be able to come back and do that. So after TerraPass, you founded your own firm called Climate Strategy Partners. And what's interesting is that at TerraPass, you are focused more on the B2B business, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, at CSP, mm -hmm. you had a lot of engagement, let's say, philanthropic actors uh, with, for example, Rockefeller and the Schmidt Family Foundations. Yeah. So there, there are two ways to spin that. One is I founded my own firm and, and developed these new and partnerships with philanthropy and NGOs which is true. Another way for the women in the audience to describe that is that was my through line between having two kids and going back into the rapid fire. I had two startups at home. I didn't need another one sort of professionally, but it was a great chapter. I, that was sort of the evolution from the intersection of business and, and climate or sustainability to capital and climate. Um, because I started to track through my roles in philanthropy, you know, the disconnect between the grant making side and the principal assets or the endowment, you know, the sort of strategic philanthropy started to become somewhere between an oxymoron and a grand challenge. Um, when it came to climate, it was in the wake of the failure of Waxman Markey, where everyone had been putting their money into policy and then trying to figure out what do we do now? Um, so 
that is where I really started to hone in on this question of how do you develop strategies for large pools of assets for these big asset owners that appropriately uh, address climate risk and opportunity. That then charted my course for the next decade or more. And when you entered the CSP in 2013, you joined back Stanford. Yeah. And you joined as the managing director of the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance. And I saw that you created a course or a workshop called Investing in a New Climate. And during that same time, you also were publishing papers about connecting impact investing with federal clean energy incentives. Yeah. So with CSP, I had a number of clients who I was working with. The back to Stanford transition happened when I saw the announcement of the Steyer Taylor Center as a joint initiative between the business school and the law school, looking at the intersection of energy and policy and finance. And that was very appealing given my background and the knowledge and experience I'd had working at a center on campus. Knowing that really these, these centers get stood up with great conversations between you know the benefactor and the development office. And then you know, there's a faculty member running it, but you have to make a there there. Um, and so I saw an opportunity to come back with my entrepreneurial interest and skills and, and make that something and, and really build br- the bridges between academics and market that are necessary for that work to have impact. So I started as a consultant through Climate Strategy Partners and then joined full time. And at that time, the conversations were, were, there were sort of two frontiers. One was the divestment movement and conversation and how do we move beyond the sort of yelling at each other and, and messages that fits a post-it note to the more complex and challenging pursuit of decarbonization of portfolios and managing climate risk and opportunity. And so that investing in a new climate workshop series was um, our approach to that, to imagine bringing asset owners together by cohort and having a conversation where folks are in a learning posture and not yelling at each other to understand what does this mean? What do CIOs need to understand? What are the questions you should be asking? What are the data sources, tools, and frameworks for measuring and managing climate risk and opportunity in investment portfolios? So that work then led down the path to, as you mentioned, New York and California, and now the book. And so that's sort of that pathway. There was another pathway um, or portfolio that I was managing, which is the other piece you referenced around the early stage climate tech innovation ecosystem and the dearth of funding, particularly at that time for those necessary opportunities. And so I got really excited about that too, particularly, I mean, both of these sort of stem from my experience in philanthropy and where I saw real disconnects and gaps in practice and where there was a need for intervention. And so that portfolio evolved into really developing in partnership with Prime Coalition and you know, the Tomcat Center at Stanford and Debate Energy, formerly Cyclotron Road, Prio, this network of family offices to really build this ecosystem to nurture and nourish the entrepreneur and the ideas and innovations that were emerging to address the climate crisis. And so that was another body of work that I really delighted in. And we can say that was a success. <laughs> now we're moving on to the next frontier of additionality and in, in thinking about how to get critical uh, capital into or catalytic capital into critical uh, project development gaps um, as we go to deploy these technologies. And then we can also continue the conversation about how that sort of uh, investing in new climate, climate risk disclosure conversation evolved into the work that I'm doing now. Uh, awesome. Before we move into that, uh, you mentioned Prime Coalition, and I saw in 2015, you had a paper on aligned intermediary, which I found very interesting. Uh, so could you talk about the transition from AI, as it can be called, uh, to, uh, let's say Prime Coalition. And also recently, I, I read that uh, Prime, which uh, with Azola, uh, was able to raise a $239 million fund. So uh, that's really impressive. Yeah. And you're a board member of Prime. Yeah. 
shout out to Azola and Prime. It is hugely impressive. When I first met Sarah Carney and she and Matthew Norton came to campus to have this conversation about building this catalytic capital fund that blended philanthropy and finance first investors to seed and steer these critical climate solutions. And and did the math at the punchline was a $250 million blended capital VC fund. And we were like, huh, okay, that would be amazing. That's not going to happen like now in, you know, in 2013, but here we are in 2023 and they did the hard work and built the model, you know, deal by deal syndicate and then an impact fund to now a full-fledged vehicle. So that is a really exciting story. Back to the aligned intermediary or AI. Yeah, we were early on AI. That was a really exciting moment in, in recognition of this this vision or hope that I had around the Steyer Taylor Center being a bridge between academics and markets. Because when you think about it, what we did there was you know, we wrote a paper and we being uh, myself, Ashby Monk, who's at Stanford uh, running the Long-Term Investing Center, and Sarah Carnum from Prime, imagined this vehicle, which was never meant to be perpetually called the Aligned Intermediary. It was just imagining an Aligned Intermediary, but it took off so fast, the name stuck. We didn't have time to change it. But to envision this entity that would serve as sort of an outsourced in-house deal team for these large asset owners that just didn't have the alignment in their current pool of intermediaries to gain access to these climate tech innovation and to the um, climate infrastructure that they wanted to to own and to have um, as part of their portfolio, but just didn't have the right tools in their toolkit. But the magic there was we turned this blueprint, this paper that was a blueprint, into reality through our networks and socializing these ideas, raising money from philanthropy to then with Prime as a fiscal sponsor, house this project, hired a CEO um, who was the former head of the loan program office at the Department of Energy and get off to the races and actually building this thing and making it real. And, And this also speaks to the importance of having support in the federal government, this was a time where Joe Biden, as VP, was a champion of this um, and hosted a, a climate finance summit in the lead up uh, to Paris, where they were trying to get points on the board to show interest and in, in action among the private sector. And so we were able to take the, the blueprint plus the CEO and the money from philanthropy to then ring fence a billion dollars in commitments of if you build this, we will come. Um, and that then was a point on the board for this summit and, and leading into Paris and just showed what's possible when you have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and use the knowledge and networks to translate ideas into uh, That's a really impressive story. And I like how these ideas evolved and eventually became successful over time. Uh, one year after Prime Coalition was uh, founded in 2017, you joined Stanford Law School as a lecturer, but you also co-founded the Sustainable Finance Initiative at Precode Institute. And I was reading the founding document, Changing the Climate of Capital. So could you talk about the founding of the Institute and how have the research uh, focuses uh, evolved over time? Sure. Well, I'll take the lecture piece first. I mean, as you can tell from my life's journey, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a doer, I'm not a lecturer. So I never thought I would be teaching, um, but I was on my soapbox for so long and so loudly about the lack of curriculum for particularly the business school or for 21st century leaders to understand climate risk and opportunity. Um, And so I was agitating to get these courses on the roster, not for me to teach, but just they should happen and who should do it and and developing syllabus and that sort of thing. Um, Then was the law school graciously gave me the opportunity to co-create a course with a tenured faculty member and and my uh, faculty director for both Sire Taylor and SFI, Tom Heller, who's a wonderful Longtime legend and leader in the in the climate space, and then um, after the first year, he's emeritus. He said, "This is great. You're on your own." <laughs> he, uh, 
you went back to to not having a regular teaching load. And then I invited Kate Gordon, who's a wonderful, brilliant colleague to come in who um, has the policy chops, also helpfully has a law degree, which gave me more comfort being at the law school teaching when I'd never taken a law school class. So we've evolved that course into um, something I think really special and a group of alumni who've gone through it, who have gone on to do just miraculous impressive thing. And the value of that course is really in understanding the kind of systems level view of climate. And so many folks sort of dive headfirst into one piece of the puzzle. If you're not looking at the whole picture, uh, you can sometimes nothing ends up being better than something. Um, That's the teaching story. The SFI story, I mean, is really one of how universities work and, and relationships and funding. So, you know, Steyer Taylor and the Sustainable Finance Initiative are, we are mostly the same people, mostly the same research agenda, but the the magic there is that we cover the now door school. You know, we were part of the Energy Institute into the School of Sustainability, but also business and law. So we have this great platform to access resources across these different schools and most importantly, to, to engage students across all these different schools. Um, so that founding document really charted the course for what the research agenda would be at SFI. That has evolved um, over the years and we can talk about where we are now, but it has been an exciting way to continue the work, expand the reach and get more people involved. Yeah, I would like to delve deep, if I may, into how it evolved. Uh, when I read the founding document, I saw that there were four main research areas. Catalyzing private spending, measuring, disclosing, managing climate risk, dealing with stranded assets and transforming systems. And then I watched uh, your most recent video on YouTube uh, where <laughs> you talked about e-liability, which we'll cover later on. Uh, that it's the research agenda seems to be four parts, carbon accounting, carbon markets, transition pathways, and insurance. How did the research agenda evolve over time? Because I find this very interesting. Yeah, thank you for your interest and you've done your homework. That is exactly right. It is a matter of staying on the frontier. And that is everything from seeing where the biggest problems are. And then there's a whole lexicon around those issue areas. And that is both you know, in a way to stay current and to connect, but it's also to just for your, your conceiving of, of what are the core issues really clearly. And so while I would still stand by our four research areas from the original document, I know one of the things you'll see there and you will see when we do update our website with the new focus areas, it's so intersectional. I mean, like catalyzing private capital covers so much of what we do inside of carbon accounting and carbon markets and transition pathways. It's all in the spirit of catalyzing private capital. You know, this risk measurement and management piece there can be broken apart in different ways. Um, It's intersectional. And so it's keeping abreast of the frontier and the lexicon at the frontier and, and the evolution of our thinking to arrive at greater clarity of what are the core issues and the core issues as we see them now are carbon accounting, carbon markets, transition pathways, and then insurance. And frankly, transition pathways and insurance are both derivatives of these core issues of carbon accounting um, and carbon markets. And really at the end of the day, it's carbon accounting. Like that is the foundation on which we can reconcile all the snarls that we're running into in the current practice of net zero. Awesome. Uh, I'd like to now move on to your book that was uh, published in 2021 called Settling Climate Accounts, Navigating the Road to Net Zero. I really enjoyed the book and I think I, I could break it down into two brackets. One was on data coverage issues, ESG, greenwashing, scope three accounting, and so on. But then there's also different forms of, let's say, blended finance, whether that's geographically speaking in, in Korea and the US or different uh, financial tools. Uh, so could you talk more about how did you and uh, Thomas Heller uh, decide to edit slash publish this book? 
What was the thought process behind this book? Yeah. I mean, it really comes down to COVID actually, where we all were still and not traveling and uh, gathering more frequently actually as a research team over Zoom, of course. Uh, and we started, you know, we kept calling it a volume of work. I wouldn't go so far as to say book for quite some time, but we started to see how could, could with that sort of stillness, start to see how the different research agendas and investigations of our collective fellows were starting to paint a clearer picture and tell a story of what was going on, what is going on with net zero in practice. And so you know, we were very intentional with that title of Settling Climate Accounts in that we consider accounting in the triple sense of the word. So there's you know accounting in its narrative form. So that first chapter is really the history of the climate action story and really situates us in time with the context of how we got here, which I think is so critical. I'm thrilled at the you know groundswell of interest now in getting involved in climate. And it's really important to know your history and know what dead ends we've already run into, how we ended up where we are, and how that should inform uh, the road ahead. So that narrative piece is really important. There's not a lot of climate storytelling. So that was our attempt there. Then looking at accounting in its technical sense, and this is where you get into sort of the meat of the book and understanding net zero in practice and its rough edges um, in terms of making it all add up in the act of bookkeeping. And then account is the root of accountability in, in asking and starting to answer this question of who and how are we going to make this all add up? And then the takeaways from the book are really the identification of these, what we call four unsettled accounts um, that are going to continue to plague um, practitioners of net zero finance, because they're going to always struggle to add up. And these are the data boundaries, timing and obligations. We can come back and talk about that. But we wanted to get this book out in before Glasgow to just help inform leaders and practitioners of, of net zero about what this picture looks like when you step out of the trenches <laughs> and you put it in use and you have the, the, the opportunity to stop and think, which of course, most people don't have the opportunity to do. And that is an imperative for those of us with the benefit of sitting in, in academia where we can look at the big picture. We can see things for what they really are. Most of us are not academics. You know, Tom Heller certainly is, but he also left Stanford for 10 years and founded and built Climate Policy Initiative, which is one of the greatest uh, think and do tanks you, you may not have heard of, but does really incredible and important and insightful work uh, around the world. So that is what we should be doing um, with the privilege of, of at, at Stanford. Uh, so that that was a very rewarding experience. Of course, you know, there's writing a book and then there's selling a book, which we did the former. I'm not sure we really did the latter, but you know, it is accessible through all university library systems if they have a uh, Springer link. Um, it is priced as though it's, you know, handwritten by by one person <laughs> over time or more like a textbook. But we hope that people read and consume it. And we've had Nat, our book jacket quotes, which were all great, but we were talking to someone who leads sustainability for one of the large Canadian pension plans. And his quote was, if everyone had read this book before Glasgow, we would not be where we are now. Um, it really it was, was a ringing endorsement, um, but it's also tricky, right? Because there's a lot of momentum, a lot of enthusiasm, and a lot of hopes and dreams in where we are now. So it's not always popular to be the one picking things apart. And certainly from my days at Terrapass, I know you never want to make the perfect enemy the good. You never want to be the one on the sidelines throwing stones at people who are out trying to do the hard work. This is not that, and I never want to be that. That said, we have achieved so much in this journey. But if you learn anything from the history of climate action, it's not a straight shot. 
Um, there's always going to be the need for course corrections. And as long as we approach these activities with our eyes wide open, with good intentions and really a profound understanding of systems, we can navigate it. I've enjoyed this interview so far. I'm interested how you, you wear multiple hats, one in academia, one in business, and, but you also have, have played a significant role in terms of public policy. And what I'm interested in is in your work in both the state of New York and the state of California. So could you delve into that, please? Sure. I will say I have so much respect and admiration for folks who work in the public sector, and in particular, the good folks at these pension funds. Getting back to the chapter around foundation endowments and even university endowments, there's, with all due respect to my colleagues, there's sort of an elitism culture to those folks that, that just isn't there in the pension fund world. My experience was more curiosity and openness to um exploring these questions more deeply and and considering new ways of doing. And so you know, that was really the story in New York, the story in California um, of these large pension funds, certainly in response to stakeholder pressure, but also as as their leadership started to dig deeper into these questions, you know, in part thanks to those workshop series that we did, um, there there really was a curiosity and a need to, to develop better tools and data sources and frameworks. And so this New York experience was a partnership with the governor um, of New York and the state controller to create this first ever decarbonization advisory to, to tackle these thorny questions of climate risk and opportunity in, in public pension funds. Uh, that was a great experience working with my colleagues there. We published, I think, a groundbreaking report at that time, set of beliefs and recommendations that really started to inform and, and galvanize, frankly, that the kind of the, the disclosure TCFD work that followed. Um, which makes it a little ironic that we're, we'll get to where I'm saying it's time to evolve from there. <laughs> but but I hope if nothing else, so far I've, I've demonstrated that, I, that I'm, I'm always open to keeping an eye on the frontier and continuing to evolve. Um, California was a similar exercise, but even more uh, comprehensive in that it wasn't just looking at the state uh, pension funds, PERS and STRS and, and UC Regents, but it was also looking uh, in a groundbreaking way at the budget, um, looking at procurement. And that report, I highly recommend. It's new. The New York report is great too. You know, things have evolved since then, although you'll see the seeds of where we are now there. Um, the California report was groundbreaking in its investigation of both the procurement and investment side. It informed the actions of the federal government on the same forms and, and sets of activities. And, and so that was, was all really important work that I'm proud of and helped inform, again, my thinking an understanding of the limits of disclosure. After all that, <laughs> I understand that you know, disclosure um, is different than accounting. And that, you know, these unsettled accounts that we identified in our book, and frankly, the book and the California report came out at the same time. So it took almost another year of thinking um, in understanding the problems. So if our book was a big diagnostic of all the ways in which net zero will add up, it was time to publish the solution, to really think deep on where to go from here. Uh, and that both New York and California helped inform my thinking around what's going to work, what's not going to work, and what other tools do we need to get. I would like to spend uh, one or two more minutes on uh, California, since you're a native mm -hmm. Californian. Uh, you're a Sustainability Advisory Council member of the Pacific Gas and Electric Company. And you had some interesting points about that in your written testimony to the U.S. House of Representatives uh, regarding the ESG issues related to that. And also, uh, you've been vocal about uh, the uh, problem with uh, the insurance markets in California uh, fairly recently on LinkedIn. Uh, so I'd like to know your thoughts uh, about the state of California uh, in that regard. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess a couple of things. I mean, and, uh, with regard to PG&E and ESG, which is a, a sad but true punchline to the question of uh, ESG is not the same as climate risk. Just ask PG&E. <laughs> they had great ESG score and, and were the, arguably the, for one of the first climate bankruptcies. Um, this actually is sort of, well, 
it comes back to the unsettled account of data um, from our book of recognizing that we still have poor sources of data for evaluating uh, climate risk and opportunity. But also it comes back to this turn to risk, which um, a part of the narrative chapter of our book, which is, and this gets back to the, your question about insurance, one of the, the limits of what we call this turn to risk uh, in our narrative of the climate action story is that risk can be transferred to the state. Trying to tag private actors with climate risk is a slippery slope or a jelly donut, whatever metaphor you want, where you get where you want to go um, because firms can strategically transfer risk. And so this also gets back to, to why it was so groundbreaking and important. And, and frankly, the impetus that Governor Newsom had around doing this climate risk disclosure advisory group work is understanding that, is understanding that California is put in the bill. Um, and so how do we become more resilient um, through better, again, data sources, tools, and frameworks? Um, and so that's how those things tie together and, and, and tie back to the book and to the solution set that I'm excited to talk about when you're ready to ask. <laughs> Next up, at the more federal level with the SEC, you've written this interesting article about how the SEC's roles will and won't solve climate change. Yeah, and forgive me for the dog barking background, if you can hear it in the folks at home. She's very cute. She just has a little barking problem. Yeah, so, I mean, this is interesting in that where we are with the SEC in some ways is sort of a pinnacle of success of the disclosure movement. Um, but as I talk about there and think about it, sort of the careful what you wish for, um, where as we kind of walk this tightrope from voluntary climate action into compliance regimes, it's going to be necessary to make some changes to practice. Um, there are things that work really well in a voluntary arena and things that start to turn on themselves uh, in a compliance regime. And you can sort of end up with climate as a compliance function and lose all the kind of incentive, creativity and flexibility and opportunity that, that's going to be necessary to stabilize it. Um, so. Uh, that is one of many frontiers where we need to start asking ourselves the question of when is disclosure useful and when is accounting necessary? And, and I think there's room for both. Like all things climate, it's yes and. But there is a risk of too much going in the kitchen sink where you start to, again, shove climate into a compliance function or you just siphon off so many resources of time and effort and attention into you know, this mass confessional of data um, and move drifting those resources away from real emissions reductions in the real economy and, and moving from billions to trillion in investment in climate solutions. Uh, next up, I want to move on into a topic that you're very passionate about regarding carbon accounting, emissions liability management. Uh, there's a really good video on YouTube that was published very recently of you giving a lecture on e-liability uh, management and uh, you recently became a uh, advisory board member of the eLiability Institute. So uh, could you tell us more about uh, the eLiability concept and, and what should sure. we pay attention to? Great. I'd love to. Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, so one thing to keep in mind as I'm going to respond to this is that there are two big ideas here. And so you might, you might need to separate them just to give your mind the chance to digest. But there's carbon accounting. And again, that is distinct from disclosure or counting carbon. So we'll talk about that. And that is a methodology. And then there's emissions liability management, or ELM, which is a framework. If back to our unsettled accounts, e-liability accounting solves the data and boundaries accounts. ELM solves the timing and obligations and taking together, you've got a really robust and exciting climate solution. 
So let's start with carbon accounting. And it's so funny to me that I'm like the carbon accounting enthusiast. I still remember uh, second or third day of business school sitting in accounting class, me as the startup entrepreneur uh, with my, one of my now dear friends who turned to me and said, I'm so glad we decided to take Mandarin. <laughs> That's sort of what it sounded like to me at the time. Um, but here I am as a carbon accounting enthusiast. The, the carbon accounting piece is to recognize that the tool that we have right now to develop emissions inventories, the GHG protocol, which 95% of respondents and reporters within the TCFD framework and beyond are using to count up their emissions, was not built for accounting. It was built as a proxy for risk management in anticipation of a global carbon price. It has use as a managerial tool to anticipate how carbon impacts supply chains, um, where hotspots might be. Uh, it's a great tool for advocates to tag um, firms that have been lagging or otherwise obscuring progress on climate change with a bunch of emissions. It has its uses. But as we, again, traverse this tightrope and we're into compliance, and frankly, as we get the climate clock ticks down, we got to start getting real and actual and, and count everything and only once. And that then moves you into the realm of accounting. And there's really good news. We know how to do accounting. It's been around for hundreds of years. Activity-based accounting has been around for 70 years. Like This stuff is not new, actually. It's quite old, um, which is good because then we know it works and we know how to do it and there are systems in place to do it. Um, and so this accounting method that we like in particular, which accomplishes the goals that an accounting system would need to accomplish is what's called e-liability accounting. And that was a methodology developed by Bob Kaplan at Harvard Business School and Karthik Ramana at Oxford. They published a few pieces in HBR. Their first article won the Idea of the Year Award from HBR and McKinsey. Um, this gets to the Institute now. There is now an e-liability institute founded by those two gentlemen. And I am now serving on the advisory board. The I'll come back to e-liability accounting is just simply cost accounting for carbon or activity-based accounting for carbon, where you are counting emissions, actual emissions, as they move through a supply chain, it looks a lot like in the parlance of the protocol, upstream scope one, two, and three. It's just that you're counting everything and only once. And just like you would hand down invoices through a supply chain with cost information on them for goods and services, you would be passing down the emissions information for goods and services. Um, it's elegant it, it, and known. That the Institute is now piloting with many large corporations this accounting methodology. Uh, and I, if I had my crystal ball out, I would tell you that within three years, emissions inventories will look like e-liability ledgers. It just makes more sense. It's easier. Um, and it's useful information. It addresses this data problem of noise and greenwashing and thing or infinite counting. Um, those earnest practitioners of net zero who have tried to furnish emissions inventories and pulling their hair out over their scope three upstream or clawing 12 or 20 deep in their supply chain trying to get this information out um, see this and there's hallelujah like this makes sense i can do this i have systems in place there are already companies like s p and eny that are developed that have the technology through green tokens to actually transfer this data you know, from the first mile of supply chain all the way through so that's exciting. That's carbon accounting. It all solves data in that it's actual emissions past upstream. It's auditable. It solves boundaries and that it doesn't have this confounding scope three issue. You're just counting emissions as they move. Your scope two is just your utilities scope one that's being passed down to you with your electricity bill and your emissions. Um, and again, your upstream supply chain, your scope three. 
Um, but we've still got this timing problem. We've got the obligations problem. So the timing problem is embodied uh, in, in the offset market it, and in net, net and they, they operate on a flow concept where you're just netting flows in any given year. But climate change and carbon is a stock problem. Emissions don't just go away in year one. They persist for 500, 1,000 years, depending on your gas. That has been unattended. And the other unattended or unsettled is, is what we call obligations. And so even if you have perfect data, get your boundaries lined up and you, and you solve the timing problem, it's still very unclear what climate actors are supposed to do with all that. We have these targets and these pathways that are built on science, which is critical, uh, and morality, also critical. But as an allocator of capital with fiduciary duty, it is very difficult to make these trade-offs. And you're seeing this now with the anti-ESG backlash and anti-wolf capitalism, let alone just sort of major international financial institutions starting to peel off the G-fans is because when rubber meets, they're just stuck. Um, and so this is where we have a solution. And I like to pause in this moment and sort of imagine that Stanford is known for its innovations in technology and science. And so what if I told you that Stanford had this innovation that could mobilize investment in decarbonization from billions to trillions. It could create immediate massive demand for carbon removal and address the, the temporal nature of nature-based removals and, and technology-based removals. It could fix carbon markets. It could make transition pathway planning and pursuit something more than a Soviet-style central planning exercise. Um, it could align corporate, national, and global carbon ledgers, which we've never done. And it could make net zero add up. You'd be like, great, I want to buy it. I want to invest. What is this? <laughs> it's just a framework. It's, it's emissions liability management. And it is really just taking that carbon accounting methodology and considering the other side of the ledger, making a balance sheet out of it. So you have your liabilities and you have your assets. And so firms and, and investors, instead of pledging net zero by 2050, whatever that means, not to say so cynically that they have no intention, but just like, how do you actually do that? What does that actually mean? And I think any, any earnest practitioner of net zero is confronted and confounded by those issues as we speak. This makes it real. It's to say, okay, I'm going to, instead of pledging net zero or at, to define my net zero pledge, I'm saying I'm going to own these emissions liabilities on my balance sheet. They are long duration liabilities. I'm going to own and manage a pool of duration matched removal assets. I now have very significant incentive to avoid emissions in my supply chain. So instead of going in the offset market and trading hypothetical counterfactuals that are certificates that I don't own and can't capitalize, I'm going to invest because it's cheaper for me to decarbonize my supply chain than it is to have to do a permanent duration liability um, removal. That's, that's sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it in rock for a thousand years. That's expensive. I now can spend let any, you know, if that's 500 bucks a ton, I can spend $499 a ton avoiding emissions in my supply chain with clear obligation and, and information. Um, so you elegantly endogenize the cost of carbon uh, into the global economy. There are lots of interesting questions and applications and areas for further research. We are piloting ELM2 and, and learning by doing, but it's exciting to think about making net zero real. And what we're doing right now is hoping net zero is going to add up and emissions liability management makes net zero add up. This is super interesting. How does ELM deal with scope three emission challenges? Okay. So this question of what about downstream scope three emissions comes up 
every time for understandable reasons, because if you were paying attention, you realize that what I just described was a methodology that gets you from cradle to gate. And, and of course, there's household emissions, right? And this is the story I love to tell to, to help people kind of get ready for this is there's a South Park episode where the kids try and find the evil monster behind Walmart that's destroying small businesses. And the kids search around, search around, they finally found the room, they find the door, they find the box, they open it up and it's a mirror. And the reality is, yeah, we, household emissions are real. <laughs> we are burning fossil fuel um, and someone needs to own that. And, and certain advocates are tagging the, the upstream oil and gas or automotive or airlines with those. And that's a very effective advocacy tool. But when it comes to actually reducing emissions, the reality is a couple things. One, disclosure doesn't, doesn't reduce emissions. These are estimates and they can be highly gamed. My favorite example of this is in Europe with an automotive manufacturer in confronting an obligation to disclose scope three emissions, change the warranty of their, their spark plug 1,000 miles to 10,000 miles, and whoop, there goes all your scope three emissions for the year. So we need to address this, but we need better tools to address it. And so that's where policy comes in. You need efficiency standards. You need mandates. You invite the question of with carbon balance sheets, is California going to own its residents' emissions liabilities? Maybe. Interesting. Maybe not, but at least they have the price signal of how to make decisions around policy of what are cost-effective policies if we know these emissions need to go to zero. Um, and you also leave the door open for in the net zero pledge world, if, if say you know, Apple is a sustainability leader, they've got their zero ELM or, or balanced ELM uh, phone that they're going to sell me. So from cradle to gate, I know that they've assumed the liabilities with duration matched assets for this phone. But they might go the extra mile and say, okay, we're going to make some assumptions about how you're going to use that phone, how long you're going to use it for, how much you're going to charge it, where you live, and what the emissions profile is of your power grid. So that's always going to be a voluntary, extra, unauditable, estimated activity. And that's great. And that's fine. We should encourage it. But that's sort of how attending to scope three is really a downstream scope three is really a policy question. Another question that, that often comes up is, wait a minute, if, if the only thing that counts as a tradable asset and a removal asset is our nature-based or technology-based removals. We don't have a lot of technology-based removals right now. Nature is critical, but again, this is for new removals, not avoided deforestation. What about avoided emissions? That is basically the carbon offset market as we know it today. I mentioned this earlier, but it's worth coming back. Avoided emissions are, are trading hypothetical counterfactuals. I've been at this a long time, seeing the challenges that have confounded the voluntary carbon market, the CDM market for decades. My concern is we are trying to address them again with the same questions um, and the same hope that, that somehow this time will be different. And what's so elegant about emissions liability management is it captures all of that activity that, it, that occurs within a supply chain. So all the fuel switching, all the avoided deforestation that, it, that occurs or all the deforestation that occurs as a result of land use changes in a supply chain um, material switching, all the stuff that's like stuck in green premium land right now, um, or now what people are calling scope four or insetting, it's all capitalized through investment on a balance sheet in the form of lower liabilities. So you, you create real assets and, and capitalize act these activities on a balance sheet, which enables, you know, the scaling up from billions to trillions. So I want to make sure people understand it's not, it doesn't ignore avoided emissions it capitalizes them. <laughs> um, and that's what we need for this stuff to be real. Right now, all the spend is, is marketing, advertising, and philanthropy. They don't own anything. It's not a real asset. It's a certificate um, that points to an activity that maybe happened.
And with regard to forests, and again, back to the question of timing, under an ELM structure, if that forest that you owned burns up, you have an impaired asset. You need to have an adjustment on that asset to balance your balance sheet again. And then you have a new scope one emissions that need to be accounted for. So once you start to think of everything as an accounting problem, it, all these problems, again, that, that are confounding markets and, and investment and decarbonization are become much more clearly addressed. Uh, thank you for that very elaborate answer. And I look forward to see how uh, the ELM concept evolves. And uh, best wishes to you uh, and your colleagues at the eLibrity Institute for your research. Uh, so we're now reaching the end of the interview. And I'd like to end this uh, closing questions, basically personal professional advice to our listeners. So there are three questions. The first one is, what's your advice to non-technical folks who want to transition to climate startups? Like, what would you advise your MBA students or your law students who want to get into climate? Yeah. Well, I'm a non-technical climate person who worked in an early stage venture, so it can happen. Not only can it happen, I mean, it is necessary, right? I mean, the technology, climate is so intersectional. It's not, you can't just solve the tech, you have to solve the system. And that means being uh, conversational and, and being able to translate across technology, science, policy, finance. Um, and, it, and it takes real athletes who can play these translational roles uh, and who can ensure that interventions uh, succeed within systems and, and are aligned within systems. Uh, and I would just say there is climate is everything. It is not an environmental problem. It is not a technology problem. It, it is everything. And so whatever it is that you are interested in doing, whatever your skills are, there's a U-sized hole in the, in the climate opportunity set. And as long as you're pursuing something where you are good at it, you like it, and you're with great people, like you're, <laughs> you're doing it right. Uh, awesome. Uh, the last two questions, if I can club them together, is what's your advice to future academics, researchers, and people that want to engage in policy? Uh, what would you tell yourself before you had engaged in all these initiatives? I think empathy and understanding is so critical. Like these are, again, back to the this sort of intersectional nature and, and being able to translate. I mean, I, I just am in awe of the public servants I've interacted with and um, have so much respect for their pain tolerance, frankly, for being willing to do the work to get ideas implemented. You can't just be right. Um, you have to listen. You have to engage. You have to, again, within the sort of systems of human systems, sort of figure out how to move a system forward. And it takes all kinds and it takes a great deal of empathy uh, and listening, humility, um, and understanding. Uh, and, and there's a tendency within academia to just be right. And, and that doesn't cut the mustard. Like you've got to have the hand out and reach and translate and empathize. Thank you very much for this great interview. I really appreciated listening about your career evolution. I think a lot of the listeners will uh, get a lot of valuable lessons out of it and also about the different reports and different concepts such as e-liability management. I wish a great summer in California. Thank you so much, Jonas. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.